0: Alright, welcome back to Arca Hope Podcast. We're having our Bible study here on Thursday night. Usually we meet on Friday night, but uh, we have something going on tomorrow. And I can't remember what it is. Ballet. 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 So anyways, tonight we're continuing our Bible study of the ancient Messianic festivals that are talked about in the Torah. And our book that we've been using as a starting point for discussion, other than the Bible, obviously, is... Ancient Messianic Festivals by Ken Johnson. And so I recommend Ken Johnson. Uh, He's got some really good studies out there. He's got a website. I believe it's uh, BibleFacts.org. Yes, BibleFacts.org. He's got some good studies on there. I'd encourage you to check it out. He's got a lot of stuff on there about before the flood and after the flood, ancient history of mankind. And so if you're into that sort of thing, the book of Genesis would be a great resource for you to check out. But reviewing a little bit, we talked about the Passover, and the preparation of the Passover lamb, and we talked about how there were a number of rituals surrounding that that point to Jesus. For example, we talked about how the blood was applied to the outside of their home, and there would be three spots that the blood would be put on. So the left, the right side of the door, and above on top, and these would incidentally be the same locations where blood would be on the cross. Jesus having his hands nailed into the cross and also his head resting against the top of the cross because of the crown of thorns, it would have left a spot of blood there too. So the pattern of the blood on the door points to the cross. We talked about how the lamb, according to ancient tradition, which we did confirm through a fact check, that the lamb was skinned and roasted upright on a pomegranate stick and it was positioned on two sticks. There was a cross piece in between. And so the lamb basically looks like a person stretched out on a cross. Uh, We also found evidence that there was something placed on the head of the lamb. Ken Johnson mentions here that it was the intestines, which we couldn't confirm that outside of his book, but we did find a reference um, in a Jewish source that hinted at that. So, Uh, Apparently, this was definitely something done in early Christians like Justin Martyr when they were having dialogues with Jews would point this out. And since then, the tradition has changed. And of course, we wonder if that was why it changed that Jews were hearing this connection. And a lot of them were being convinced by it. We know that on a number of other issues, such as the prophecy of Daniel 9, Isaiah 53, those were passages that Christians were using in their evangeliz- uh, evangelization of the Jewish people. And those were passages that were also silenced and suppressed among the synagogues because many Jews were being convinced by them, through them, that Jesus is the Messiah. And even today, there are a number of Jews that don't understand the Isaiah 53 prophecy. It's a great place to go if you're witnessing with someone who has Jewish heritage but doesn't have the Jewish Messiah, which is the Lord Jesus. But we talked about some of these traditions. Um, We also mentioned basically how the week would look for Passover. So Palm Sunday, whenever Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that was the same day, Nisan 10th, the 10th of Nisan, It was the same day that they would take a lamb for Bethany. The high priest would choose an unblemished lamb and bring that lamb to the temple. That lamb would be inspected for four days before on Thursday, Nisan 14, that lamb would be slain and it would be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. But on Palm Sunday, when that lamb was brought in, it mentions in Ken Johnson's book that the lamb would be brought to the Eastern Gate And as the high priest brought the lamb, the people would line the side of the road with palm branches and wave them, which is exactly how they received Jesus on the same day. So I don't know exactly the timing, but this happened on the same day and it's not a coincidence that it's so similar. Jesus is making a statement here. He already made a statement by taking the donkey's colt and by riding on the back of it, that fulfills a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. So, It wouldn't surprise me if Jesus was doing this intentionally to indicate to the people that he was the Passover lamb, even though, unfortunately, the people didn't understand that. Even his own disciples didn't understand the concept of his substitutionary sacrifice until after the fact. Uh, But anyways, on Thursday, that lamb would actually be tied to one of the horns of the altar in the temple at 9 a.m., which is the exact time that Jesus was put on the cross. And then at p.m., which is the same hour that Jesus said it is finished and died, right. that is when the lamb would have been sacrificed by the high priest. So again, these are not coincidences. Jesus is doing this according to the Father's plan, according to the eternal plan of redemption, and all of that which was... What's that now? That was the whole point of the, that was the, whole point of the Passover. All of these details were meant to be fulfilled by Christ so that way the people could see the connection uh, you know I've talked to my students about this I said sacrifices every single day there were sacrifices every day among the people throughout the old testament period and all of these sacrifices are meant to condition the people to be willing to accept the messiah as their lamb as their substitutionary sacrifice all the festivals and the details that Jesus fulfilled in his death His burial and His resurrection, we'll talk about those in a minute too. All of that was meant to get the people ready to believe. Hopefully, after it happened, they would realize, wow, this is exactly what we should have expected in the first place. Jesus is fulfilling all that was given to us in the Law and the Prophets. Now, let's talk about what happens on the Seder, because we didn't get into this last time we had this discussion. We did our own Seder. Excuse me if I sound a little stuffy, because... All of a sudden, I'm really stopped up. But anyways, the Seder meal was held the night after Christ would have been put on the cross. So this would be Nissan 15, according to the Jewish reckoning of time. So from our perspective, it would still be Thursday. It would just be Thursday night. But it was the beginning of Nissan 15, and that's when they would have had their Seder meal. We discussed, I believe, last time that Jesus and the disciples had their Passover as either... An early Seder, which is possible, I don't recollect if I mentioned or not that there was a difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees on how they reckoned the Passover. So there were different traditions at the time. I know that the Essenes, they had their own calendar that differed from the other Jews, the, the other mainstream ways of reckoning time. So it could be that according to some calendar, Jesus was keeping the Seder properly. Uh, It could also be that it wasn't a Seder at all. It could be that it was the last meal before the fast of the firstborn. Uh, I do remember mentioning that, that the fast of the firstborn would be on Nisan 14th. It was the same day that the lamb was uh, tied to the horn of the altar and later killed. All throughout that day, the firstborn in Israel would not eat. And the last meal that they would have before commencing that fast was the night before. And so that could be the last supper. It literally would have been the last supper for the firstborn in Israel. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that instead of it being a Seder, this was another meal of significance during the Passover season. But we need to talk about the Seder because it was something that the people of Israel were commanded to do. So in Leviticus 23, verses five through seven, I'll read these verses. It says, in the 14th day of the first month at even is the Passover, the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be commenced again the evening after sundown of the same day that the Passover lamb was killed and sacrificed. And that Unleavened Bread Festival would last from Nissan 15 to Nissan 21 for seven days. Uh, If you want more information, if you want to hear about the details of the first Passover, as they're given in the book of Exodus, that's in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, But let's talk about the Seder. The Seder has a lot of details in it that are not given in scripture. So there are a couple options about this one. These details were developed over many generations. And... They don't necessarily have any prophetic significance because they were devised by man and not by God. However, there are details in the Seder that seem significant. And whenever we had our Seder, we talked about the connections between these traditions and Christ. So I can't help but wonder if what we have in the law is the bare bones Passover meal, Seder meal. And the other details that are left out were given by God, they simply weren't put down in Scripture. Now, we had to be careful about this because the Jews believe in something called the Oral Torah, the Oral Law. And if we can't find support for a tradition that claims to be part of the Oral Law, if we can't find that support in Scripture, then we can say it's okay to do, you know, as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible. But we can't necessarily say that this is commanded by God or this is prophetic if it's not something that we can back up and verify in scripture. So when it comes to the Seder, if we can see that these details together cumulatively seem to give us a picture of Christ, then I think that would lend credence to the idea that perhaps these traditions were given originally and they were passed down orally. We know that many Eastern cultures, including the Jews, were oral cultures. So it could be that The most important things that we need to know, the things that are inspired by God, that were preserved for generations, that are for our benefit, for our edification, those are here in the word of God. But the other details uh, were passed on by word of mouth. But again, we had to be careful because the Pharisees, they would lump a lot of traditions under the oral law. And they would say this is the law of Moses, when in fact it was not of Moses. It was something that was devised by the elders, perhaps many generations, many hundreds of years after Moses. And they would lump it under the authority of Moses, even though Moses wouldn't have approved of it at all, right? And Jesus talked about that. He says, you take the traditions of man and you put them on the same level as the word of God. You actually uh, do away with the word of God in favor of your traditions. So it wasn't just that they put them on the same level by keeping their traditions, they were actually breaking the law of God. So again, I'm very wary about the oral law, but I do want to look at the Seder because I think that there are some interesting things to learn. Okay, so the first thing, uh, which I found really interesting, was the fact that they have three loaves of matzah. Matzah is unleavened bread. It's the festival of unleavened bread, so there's lots of unleavened bread, uh, without the yeast, uh, representing sin not very tasty yeah it's yeah it's not very tasty <laughs> but it, it represents I like it. christ is the sinless one um, also yeah. the way that they would bake matzo bread um you know once it's finished the end product is punctured and striped mm-hmm. which jesus was pierced for our transgressions mm-hmm. by his stripes we are healed so that's interesting in and of itself but unleavened bread represents sinlessness, and Christ is um, our sinless substitute. But there are three particular pieces of unleavened bread uh, that together form like a, a sandwich, and uh, this is called the matzah tash. And according to Ken Johnson, he argues, and it's practiced in many Messianic homes when they do the Seder, that the matzah tash refers to the Trinity. Right. And so they would take the sinner, of the the trio and they would break it and they would take the piece from that broken uh, matzo loaf and they would wrap it up in a linen cloth and they would hide it. The father of the house would hide it. And we did that when we had our Seder and I think the kids really had fun with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took them a long time to find it too. I mean, I just put it right under my hat and I thought they're going to find that like three seconds. But I guess they've learned not to mess with my hat, which is a good thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that represents how Christ the second member of the Trinity, the son of God was broken for our sin. And he was wrapped in a burial shroud and he was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And he was hidden away for three days and three nights bodily. He was hidden away in the tomb in spirit. We talked all about on one of our previous podcasts, how in spirit he went to the spirits in prison and he proclaimed a message of victory there. Jesus did not. And I emphasize and I repeat, he did not suffer Mm -hmm. in hell while he was in the grave for three days and three nights. He was already victorious. As you read in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, it says he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He was not suffering spiritually while he was in the grave. He was alive in the eyes of the Father. He was accepted for our justification. And all he was doing for those three days and three nights was going on a victory proclamation tour. Mm. And he did that to the spirits who were in prison. And he also did that, I believe to those who were in paradise or Abraham's bosom. And of course the message would be very different for them, for the fallen angels. It would be you lose for the people who are in paradise. Your it would be, it out. yeah, you're about to you get, get, get a ticket out of here. It. Yeah. It's, it's a nice place down here, but it's a lot better in my father's house. So Jesus was victorious during that time, but that's what is represented by the low being broken and being wrapped in the linen and it hidden away uh, and then being found later on. Um, uh, this is uh, called the afikomen, by the way, the loaf of uh, bread there that is broken and, and hidden away. Um, there are a few other elements, and I'm not going to go through all the details because, to be honest with you, I've only done a Seder one time. So my understanding of the information is it's not mastered. <laughs> um, I'm still working on it, but I do want to point out a few things. So first off, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and the lamb. Those are the three essential elements according to the Bible. So if we're being like biblical purists and we just stick with the Bible, there's only three elements mentioned there. The Passover lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. And a lot of this other information was added later on. Again, you know, significant perhaps, but those are the three elements from Scripture. So what is up with the bitter herbs? Well, it represents, no doubt, the bitterness of their bondage while they were in Egypt and they were enslaved there. But since the Passover is about redemption, when God brings them up out of Egypt, out of that slavery, it represents us being delivered from the bondage of sin. And so whenever we celebrate the Passover, even as Christians, we should remind ourselves of the bitterness of sin, where we were. We were enslaved. We were in bondage. We've been set free from that. So we don't need to go back to the bitterness. We don't need to go back to the sin because we've been bought with a precious price. Now, we are a free grace ministry. And if you've never heard what that means, I want to explain it to you, and I'll give you some resources. I'd encourage you to go to GraceLife.org, which is run by Charlie Bing. Go by faith. Uh, go to FaithAlone.org, uh, which is run by uh, Bob Wilkin and uh, Sean Lazar. These ministries, I think, are invaluable when it comes to answering questions maybe that come up when you're studying passages that are difficult to interpret, passages that may imply at first glance that salvation is based on our works in some way, but it's not. Salvation is by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way we receive that grace, we're recipients of it, is by faith. Not by faith plus works, not by faith plus uh, faithfulness, not by faith plus perseverance. And so, when we think about, at Passover time, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very precious to us because we don't see it as grace that's diluted in any way. It's pure grace. We know that we're eternally secure because of Christ. And so when we talk about reminding ourselves about this bitterness, we're not suggesting that you know one can put themselves back into that bondage in the same way they were in it before. We will never be able to go back to that same state that we were in because now we have everlasting life. That life is everlasting. Now that we've been born again, we cannot be unborn. However, we can't expose ourselves to the bitterness of sin and all of sin's consequences if we go back to that sin. Sin comes with consequences in and of itself, natural consequences, but it also comes with the chastising of the Lord. Uh, As children of God, he will discipline us if we go back to our sin. And so that's something that comes up. uh, That's something we're reminded of whenever we think about the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs, by the way, are called maror, and Hebrew. And there's another thing called keroset. That's yummy. And yeah. it is very yummy. And I don't That's know. I'd have to check it out. I'd have to look up the Hebrew. I don't know if it's a keroset, you know, a deep guttural sound, or if it's keroset, like a hard K sound. It ultimately doesn't matter. <laughs> I think it's an H because you can also spell it with just an H. Really? I know that whenever you transliterate words from Hebrew or, or from Greek into English, you look at it. And if you know Greek and you know, Hebrew, Mm. it's a little annoying because it doesn't look like it actually is pronounced at all. Right. Yeah. It's it's not, it's chala, you know, but that doesn't come across in English, but it's the same thing with thinking about the name Jesus, you know, uh, in Hebrew, Jesus's name means Jehovah's salvation, or it's been roughly translated in many contexts as just salvation. Um, because salvation is inextricably tied to God and his nature. But it's Yeshua. Yes. You know, that's, I mean, But we don't say Yeshua, we say Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? We're also not a ministry that believes you have to speak Hebrew to be holy and to be in fellowship with God. So uh, Yeshua is the way he would have been referred to in Aramaic in his own day. Um, it's what he would have answered to. Messianic Jews still. Mes- Messianic Jews say Yeshua. You know what? That's fine. Yeah, That's absolutely. absolutely fine. I'm a Gentile and I'm an English speaker, and so I say Jesus. And uh, hey, I think... Zeus. I, I don't <laughs> and if you're Spanish and you want to say Jesus, hey, the Lord's okay with that too. Uh, but anyways, the Heroset refers to the mortar. It symbolizes the mortar between the bricks whenever the Israelites built up those store cities in Egypt. And it also represents, of course, the sweetness of being set free from bondage. Uh, There are a few other things. Uh, There's carpus. Carpus um, is a vegetable. Um, It's not a bitter vegetable. Um, It's a vegetable which represents the freshness um, or the humble beginnings of Israel. And this is one of those things that I still... I still haven't heard a really super good explanation on it, but I have read a little bit. And apparently Carpus represents uh, Israel, how it started out. Whenever Israel came into Egypt in the book of Genesis, it mentions that they were 70 people. So it was pretty small. And uh, those vegetables, the Carpus represents, I suppose, the freshness of spring. And so we have a new beginning. We have 70 people. We have a small nation. They almost went into extinction because of the famine that lasted for seven years, but God brought His people there, and from those humble beginnings, they grew into a great nation, numbering over two million people by the time the Exodus happens. And so, was that our parsley, the carpus was parsley, or was it? My yes, name? car. Uh, yes, it was parsley, uh, which ironically it was pretty bitter. parsley was pretty bitter. <laughs> uh, it may have even uh, well, no, I was about to say maybe even better than the, uh, bitter, blah, more bitter than the bitter herbs that we had, but the bitter herbs Marsh we had. Was pretty rough. Was the yeah, horseradish that's that yeah right? bitter, though. that just yeah, it's pretty bitter. so it's often like, the the bitter herbs yeah. are replaced with horseradish whenever people have modern satyrs they obviously didn't have horseradish back then uh, like, at then least not with not when they had with their their original now when they had you their original seder I mean they they probably would have had as bitter herbs a type of wild lettuce most of the commentaries argued that, that that's what they had and and it, would, it would have been it would have been a bitter lettuce something that you'd be able to find growing wild I don't know so if you if you know of some type of bitter lettuce then you can use that in your seder if you like but we did the horseradish and man I need some of that the right now it, it would clear me right up it no, really so would get, some. get me some okay. like for boxes. real all right well we're back so I had me a well I'll if up. I'm telling all the truth I didn't have a full teaspoon of horseradish because I'm not that much of a man. But uh, <laughs> I had some and it cleared me up there for a second. And I also got some pill that I don't really know. But apparently it's, it's good It's good for me. It's homeopathic, whatever that means. <laughs> Sugar pill, placebo, I don't know. But um, anyways, hopefully... My nose won't clog up again while I'm teaching. But let's talk about, again, the Unleavened Bread uh, Festival. And there are a couple things that I don't want to fail to mention because they're very interesting. So another thing, whenever the Afikomen, whenever that piece of the matzah that's wrapped up and hidden away is found by the kids, whichever kid finds it, gives it back to the father. And the father, in return for receiving the Afikomen, gives the child a coin. Right. And, and this is referred to as the promise of the Father. And when you read in John 14 and John 16, Jesus says, when I go back to the Father, I'm going to send you one like me, the comforter, the counselor, which is the Holy Spirit. And he is also referred to as the down payment for the redemption that will be fully accomplished whenever Jesus returns. So, when you get saved, you're born again, but we're still waiting on our glorified bodies. So, whenever Jesus was found, whenever the resurrection was accomplished and he visibly appeared to his disciples, it was after that that the Father then sent the Holy Spirit which is the down payment of our redemption. Mm. So it's interesting, there's this exchange. The Son comes back from the dead, and then the Holy Spirit is sent. And the first day that Jesus appeared to the disciples, that Sunday, Thomas was not present at this time. This is the first time he appeared to the disciples. And it says that he breathed on them, and he says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And so it's interesting that this exchange in the Seder between the child giving the hidden Afikom back to the father and the father giving a coin, it seems to be relating to the giving of the Holy Spirit, which of course wouldn't be accomplished uh, until Pentecost. But uh, Jesus saying that the day of his resurrection uh, seems to tie in with this particular tradition here. Um, It seems very compelling that there would be a relationship between the two. Uh, now, there are four cups that are uh, drunk on the uh, Seder meal on mm. pa- on Passover, and we didn't do this because it was our first time doing the Seder, and that just seemed a little complicated. Uh, I would need a little bit more prep work to understand the significance of each cup and the order in which they're drank and all that stuff. You don't drink a couple of them that's what I'm saying. Like that was stuff that I needed to study more thoroughly, but I want to go and tell you what the cups are. If you're listening, uh, we have, is it in scripture? The the cups? No, no. And so this, this would be part of the oral Torah. Yeah. So you have the cup of sanctification, which represents Israel being sanctified as God's special people. You have the cup of affliction, which represents how they drank the cup of, of affliction whenever they were slaves in Egypt. You have the cup of redemption, which refers to the fact that they were redeemed out of that bondage through the Passover. And then you have uh, the fourth cup, which is the cup of Elijah. And the fourth cup is poured and given to a child and the child is sent to the door to see if Elijah has returned for that year. So There's this elaborate part to play to see if Elijah has returned. And if he has, then that cup is for Elijah. And though I don't believe it's mentioned here, I reckon, Christy, that that's one of the cups that is not drunk. In the Christian Seder, they say that that's because Jesus says we'll drink it with him in the kingdom. Is there no connection between uh, one of those cups not being drunk? And it's because Elijah hasn't showed up. Well, I'm, probably, I'm sure that probably Yeah, and again, this is something that we didn't research as much. I just threw away the thing. We <gasps> she, she threw oh, away the pamphlet. Oh, Jesus. I'm sure we can find something on it. Ken Johnson doesn't elaborate on the cups, but I mean it's pretty obvious that each one of these cups refers to something significant pertaining to salvation. Uh, we're sanctified when we're born again. We were afflicted in our sin before we were saved. We were redeemed, and so all these cups I think have what is maybe the wrath of God that we don't drink. Hmm. The cup of affliction, Jesus perhaps, or us. yeah, I think maybe that's the second cup, or I don't know. We'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> we'll do some research, and next time we have one of our studies, we'll we'll bring that up. I'll highlight that. But the cup of Elijah um, makes me think about something else that Ken Johnson mentions in his book. Um, he makes the argument that John the Baptist, who is like Elijah yes. in the spirit and power of Elijah, preparing the way for Jesus the first time he came, that he was born on the Passover and that would be very interesting since the Passover has this elaborate ritual with Waiting a cup dedicated to Elijah and a chair that's set aside for Elijah. So I want to kind of share with you why he reasons out yeah. that John the Baptist was born on Passover. So he argues that since Zechariah was the priestly course of Abiah, that each course, including the course of abiah would serve for one week twice a year. And so I'm quoting him here. He says, The week of the course of Abai would be 40 days after Passover in the month of Sivan, which is June-July, and again in Kislev, which is November-December. Since Zachariah was praying the traditional prayers for Pentecost, again quoting Ken Johnson here, we know it was during the month of Sivan, that his course was there at the temple, the course of Abiah. So he's... Yes, June, July. So then he says, continue to quote him here, John the Baptist was conceived right after Zachariah's priestly duty was over. That's implied in the text. That's my commentary there. And I quote, based on the priestly purity laws, we have to give or take up to two weeks, which places John's birth about the time of the Passover. So this is something that you kind of have to read between the lines, mm-hmm. do a little bit of work, you know, mm-hmm. look at a calendar. But reasonably, John the Baptist was born on Passover, which is very interesting Right. because that would be in essence the appearance of Elijah right. typologically, preparing symbolically, the the preparing the way of the Lord. Now, is John the Baptist Elijah like Elijah, Elijah, Elijah? No, no he's not. Uh, but he does serve that role. And so he's like Elijah. He's the one standing in the wilderness. Because right Yes, he, he he's a type of Elijah. He's in the spirit and power of Elijah, which means he's empowered the same way Elijah was. I think there are a lot of similarities. Elijah spent some time in the wilderness. John the Baptist spent some time in the wilderness. Uh, Elijah had a very fiery personality who was willing to point the finger at King Ahab, and John the Baptist was willing to do the exact same thing when it came to King Herod. So I think there are a lot of similarities between the two. But John the Baptist obviously is not Elijah himself. But again, he has the same role. He prepares the way for the Messiah. And I believe that if we take Scripture literally in Malachi chapter 4, I do believe that Elijah will return before Christ returns and sets up his reign on earth. Now, we here at Ark of Hope believe that there's only one second coming, but we believe that the second coming is distinct from the rapture. So the rapture, we believe, is pre-trib. It's before the seven years of judgment that God will pour out upon the earth. I believe that the Lord is going to take us to be in the Father's house, just as Jesus promised in John 14, before all that happens. But the second coming would be after the tribulation. That's when Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two, as mentioned in the prophecies of Zechariah. Now, during the tribulation, there are going to be two witnesses. They are not identified. However, when you look at their miracles that they perform, they seem to be very similar to the miracles of both Moses yes, and, and Elijah. Elijah. Moses and Elijah are grouped very often because they represent the law and the prophets. They are literally grouped together whenever they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, I would not be shocked at all. In fact, I'm, I'm highly convinced here that Moses and Elijah will be the two prophets that are preaching during the seven years of tribulation. Strictly speaking, they will only be preaching for the first three and a half years. And then they will be put to death, resurrected in the sight of the people, and they'll be taken to heaven. Antichrist is a little bit tougher than Jezebel. Yes, 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 that's true. <laughs> uh, and if you don't know the story of Jezebel... Go back and read the book of First Kings. Yeah, sure. You can get your information there. But uh, I do believe that Elijah will appear literally to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah the second time. Uh, so whenever we celebrate the Seder, we're not only thinking back to how one of the Spirit and the power of Elijah, John the Baptist, prepared the way for Jesus, but we're also looking forward to the second coming. And whenever Jesus had the Last Supper, Again, whether this was a Seder or not, we don't know. But when he had this meal with the disciples, he did say that he would not drink of the cup again, the fruit of the vine again, until he was with his disciples in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you were referring to, Mm Christy, in a Christian Seder. But we know, of course, that that's referring to uh, when Christ comes and sets up his millennial reign on earth, uh, we will fellowship with him. And it will be a time of, of great joy. But wow. will it be grape juice or will it be wine? <laughs> um, grape juice is wine. Christy, don't you know that? <laughs> will it be fermented or unfermented? <laughs> will it be fermented or unfermented? Yeah, that is another subject for another day. Okay, um, we don't, I don't have like it, wine at all. We, we don't, don't have like in our it. official statement grape? of faith a of, of, of view on the fermentation of wine and whether or not alcohol is acceptable. I don't drink alcohol. But that would be another study for another day. But we will celebrate with the Lord Jesus in the kingdom. And that's something we're reminded of also whenever we have the Seder and the Lord's Supper. Every time we have communion, I mean, it's not just the Seder. Anytime we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate it once a month. Whenever we celebrate that, we're thinking solemnly about how Christ shed his blood for us. But we're also thinking happily about how he's going to bring his kingdom. And in that kingdom, we're going to be celebrating with him. It's going to be a a never-ending party a fellowship of a family for all eternity. That's going to be so awesome. It is going to be awesome. With all the people that we love that have gone on, that are going to be there, the people that were separated by miles and continents. I love that our children are looking forward to heaven. I mean, we talk about it every day in our Mm. household. And when they're constantly, Mommy, uh, I hope Jesus comes back today and takes us to heaven. Or I want to go to heaven now. Mm. One time, Jed even said, I want to die, and I said, <laughs> you get it. yeah, I said, well, honey, um, I don't want you to die. What do you mean by that? And uh, he said, I just want to be in heaven. And I said, okay, we can, we can work with that. Let's just talk that through a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, of the opinion that, dying isn't fun so I'd love Jesus to come back instead right I mean I would rather the rapture happen but we know where we're going either way and if you're listening to us right now this is stuff we talk about all the time we look forward to Jesus coming back we know what our blessed hope is whether he comes back in our lifetime or not which we're convinced he will right but if he doesn't we know where we're going anyways and we want you to know that too So as we're talking about the Seder, as we're talking about the Passover, it's all about Jesus being our substitutionary sacrifice. Go back and listen to a podcast that we had a couple weeks ago about the atonement. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit has already been paid for. There is no sin that is too bad that Jesus was not going to pay for on the cross. He paid for it all with his never-ending unlimited love. And just like they did when they celebrated the first Passover, they applied the blood to the doorpost of their house. You have to apply that blood too. The sacrifice has already been made. The atonement has already been provided, but you have to apply the blood. How do you apply the blood? Well, obviously this is not a physical ritual. It's a spiritual transaction. So what do you do? You place your faith in the Lord Jesus. Listen to uh, the sermon on this Sunday because we are going to be talking about Romans 10 and what it says about salvation there. But I'll go ahead and tell you because I want you to listen and hopefully accept the Lord if you haven't already. But in Romans 10, 13, it says, For whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's that simple. If you know who Jesus is, he is the Lord of all, God of the flesh, okay, Savior of the world. If you know that he died for your sins on the cross and rose again three days later for our justification, if you believe that and you call upon him and you ask him to save you from your sins, you will be saved. It is as simple as that. And we pray that you'll make that decision today if you haven't already done so. And if you have, then whenever... We're having conversations here, and you can hear us discussing how excited we are in heaven. You can share that exact same hope, mm-hmm. and hopefully you can share it with those that you know. And we'll meet you there. And we'll yeah. meet you there. If we don't see you here on earth, we're going to see you in the kingdom. So that wraps up our study of tonight. Next time we have our study on the festivals, uh, we'll be talking about the Festival of First Fruits, which pictures the resurrection of Jesus. So join us for that next time. And uh, the next time we'll be on here will be Sunday. Again, we'll be talking about Romans 10. So we look forward to you listening on uh, to that then. God bless and have a good night.